You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Say hello to my little friend. To infinity and beyond. Like tears in rain. On Wednesdays we wear pink. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Tears looking at you, kid. You talking to me? You're gonna need a bigger boat. You'll always have Paris. Hello and welcome back to Films and Friends in our first ever live episode because I messed up studio booking and I'm joined live in the studio by Tobias. Uh, hey, I'm live alive and my mic works now. And we are joined not in the studio but still live by Jake who is coming from Birmingham. Right. <laughs> that was, that was the, probably the least enthusiastic introduction we've ever had on the show. Thank you. I'll amp up my enthusiasm from here. Okay, so would you like to first introduce yourself, uh, say what you do and uh, how you know either myself or Tobias? Uh, I am a third-year physics student at the University of Birmingham, and as I put on the um, form Josh Sackface before these, I know him because we were, uh, what's what I use? Our womb mates for nine months. <laughs> yes, uh, we were, uh, it's my twin brother, Jake. So we've now completed the compliment of uh, siblings on the podcast after we had your brother a very long time ago. Yeah, my brother was... Was he, he was the second guest we had on. I think so, yeah. There we go. So, the the sibling saga, do you, do you, do you argue? When you get two films back to back, but they're not back to back. Anyway, yeah, the, the sibling season is complete. It is indeed. And so, I think the best place to start is just to start the podcast. So, as ever, we'll start with uh, what films do you like? What directors do you like? What genres? Yeah, so, I when I was writing the film, I basically scrolled back to my letterbox to see what I watched and what I liked. I'd probably say, like, in terms of directors, my favourite director in terms of somebody uh, directed to my favourite film would be Dennis Villeneuve, who directed Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, which are two films I absolutely love. So what's it about uh, Denis Villeneuve's style that you like the most? Because I found that um, although Arrival, for example, is a brilliant sci-fi film and has a very distinct visual style it doesn't look anything like Blade Runner so what what's it about him that you like I think it's just sort of the grandeur with which he makes films like when you look at Arrival the massive spaceship contrasted against the really sort of empty background because it's in a massive field and then Blade Runner you've got all the cityscapes and then they're built they go in the desert when it's basically deserted apart from all the towers and he just sort of creates a very like the cinematography in the films is just excellent, and also the the scores as well. I'm a big fan of the Arrival score, and then the Blade Runner one as well. See, I still have to confess that I've actually never, still never seen either the original Blade Runner or Blade Runner 2049. But I have seen Arrival because you made me watch it because you sort of said how how amazing you thought it was one of your favourite films, and I I did enjoy it, but I didn't quite. I just never really got into it. I don't think, and that was my problem with it. It's just one of those films where I think the person you had on this week's episode I listened to yesterday was saying about how they liked films that were sort of like had like sort of twists in them where you sort of something happened at the end you're like oh my god I can't believe that was going on throughout and Mm. that's probably why I love Arrival so much but if you figure out what's going on before that then you're sort of a bit bit stuck really without spoiling Knives Out that's how I felt about Knives Out I kind of figured out not 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 to big myself up or or think that I'm that much more intelligent but it just basically i figured out who the killer was and how they'd done it and what everything went round and by the time the big reveal happened i was just kind of underwhelmed because the twist just didn't really hit me like the gut punch that it's supposed to be did you figure out the twist do you know what's going to happen 
So in Knives Out, uh, I figured it out, but I didn't figure it out in Arrival, so it did actually hit me pretty hard. I, I cried a lot. Arrival is actually quite abstract, to be fair, like in terms of um, plots that you can sort of see stuff coming. It is one of those ones where you know, obviously, you know something's, something's up throughout the whole film, but it is quite, it is sort of still quite hidden. Like, it's quite cryptic, and there could be multiple things going on. It's not just like, oh, it's this, so it's probably going to be this. Like, I had a lot of theories going through, and I think I m- might have got it maybe 10 minutes before actually you-, you see it on screen. But, I mean, at that point, like, I was invested in it. I think it is actually a running style throughout uh, Dennis Villeneuve's films, because if you look at Prisoners, that's got quite a good twist in it. Sicario's got quite a good twist in it. It's sort of a running theme throughout his films, that the narratives seem to be going one way and then massively veer off in the other direction so they're not as linear as they first appear it's the same Blade Runner as well so I'm not going to spoil what happens in it but the direction it's taking you throughout the film at the end it takes you in a radically different direction and I think that's what makes it such an exciting film yeah I, I see what you mean um about the way he takes films in, in in a different direction I mean Sicario for me was i one of the most tense films I've ever seen. And a lot of the time when tension is happening in a film, I I struggle to be pulled into it. I sometimes just feel that maybe I'm being a bit cynical. Maybe, I don't know, my, my skin's a bit too tough for it. But I'm like, eh, that's not too tense. Yet Sicario was just, ne- li- I, I mean, literally nail-biting. I wasn't big on Sicario, to be honest. It was one of my least favourite one of his films. Did you see the sequel? I haven't, no, but I knew it was... It, it's got Josh Brolin and... Uh, whatever Del Toro in, but it doesn't have like, Emily Blunt in anymore, does it? No, and, and it wasn't by Denis Villeneuve, so I, I didn't actually get around to watching it, um, and I'm, I'm kind of scared to, because I think it would mar the grandeur of the original in my mind. Yeah, it's one more thing I would say on the Blade Runner thing that I forgot to mention, was how good the special effects in that film are. Yes. There are two, there are two, there are two very specific scenes. The first one is the bit where Ryan Gosling's character is dancing with the hologram superimposed onto... Mackenzie Davis, I think it is. Um, Anna de Armas is plays his um the hologram, yeah. but Mackenzie Davis is the um the um prostitute. I think she plays. Yeah, because doesn't because I'm pretty sure in the film the she, the woman gets projected the hologram is projected onto her and they dance yes. together. Yeah, that's that's and and then the scene at the near the end. Well, I won't, I won't spoil what happens, but it's in the big room with Jared Leto and someone you don't expect turns up. Yes, yeah, that was fantastic. You, I was, I was mind blown by that, honestly. Do you know how they did the special effects for um the the superimposed hologram scene? No. So I picked up the art book um shortly after watching the film, and this art book is it's bloody huge. It's it's a hefty piece of coffee table reading, and it has I think about eight pages dedicated to that specific scene. And essentially, the way they did it, they had four different cameras recording uh, Anna de Armas doing her thing, recording uh, Mackenzie Davis, uh, I think is her name, doing her thing, and then Ryan Gosling doing his thing, and then him interacting with both of them. So they had multiple takes from multiple angles of the same scene, and they had to just choreograph every movement down to the movement of their fingers. And it took them months and months and months of rehearsals to then be able to actually superimpose the footage with a ton of cgi trickery behind it so one thing you do have here that i'm sure will appeal to toby uh, it would appeal to me as well because i'm a big fan of the film i know it's his favorite film of the last decade you also included drive on your list yeah i'm a big fan of drive just the sort of whole aesthetic with the film is i think it sort of appeals to me the use of music is especially 
uh, good in it, like the scenes with the um, so it's a real human being. The song and when they drive, when they're driving in the like, I don't know what it is, but uh, yeah, yeah, the re- real human being. That that see that <laughs> song when I first watched Drive, my it was a weird kind of love hate relationship at first. I didn't actually. It's not like I didn't get it. I just straight up didn't like it. It just kind of pissed me off. And I thought, that song's annoying. And why is he acting the way he does? And I was just... I didn't have <laughs> patience that day. But then when I rewatched it, it all just clicked. And yeah, that, that song actually really does fit into the uh, whole narrative of the film. My favorite thing about the film that still confuses me, was sort of afterwards, is the song... What's the other big song in it that's um, by... Oh, the, the song right at the beginning. It's the one... Not... Nightcall by Kavinsky. My favourite fact about that song is that the howl at the beginning is also used by Kanye West in Wolves on Life of Pablo. And they also used it when we went to the Crystal Maze thing last week. Their sound effect of a wolf was the thing from Kavinsky <laughs> Nightcall. And I was like, oh, I recognise that from somewhere. <laughs> on, on the note of that song, there is also a remix of it that's got The Weeknd on it, which is phenomenal. Uh, one thing I would like to say about the, the director of... Because we've spoken... I think we spoke on... Was it the last podcast about Bronson, because it was also directed by the same guy who did Drive. And I was wondering, what was... You haven't seen Only God Forgives, have you? No, I was going to watch it the other day, but I didn't in the end, because I, I had a lot of negative things about it, but I saw your tweet that you said it was... You didn't understand why it got so critically shooed, is that what you said? Yeah. Never heard that word before, but... It was a critical yeah. shooing. Uh, have you have you, um, have you seen Only God Forgives? Yeah, I did actually see it. Yeah, I, I, I still have to watch the Pusher trilogy from... Um, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, but I did actually watch Only God Forgives, Neon Demon, and Bronson in kind of the span of two weeks. Did you enjoy Only God Forgives? See, I enjoyed it not as much as his other films, mm. but what I really appreciated in it was, of course, the cinematography is gorgeous, and that's you know um, Winding Refn's staple. But I really liked the very simple one-to-one use of metaphor. Um, visual metaphor in that film it's just it's a i think it's a masterclass in symbolism just get Mm. it simple get it right i think in terms of plot wise it is quite plot light and i can i can understand why some people would be sort of have an argument of sort of style over substance of it but i think actually on like a deeper level some of the themes it does tackle are very interesting so about the inevitability of your family and sort of being unable to escape because the, the Ryan Gosling's character is very similar to Drive in the sense he is very much an, a very much unlikable character or an anti-hero, probably perhaps more so than in Drive. Yeah. And and you do feel you you obviously feel that he is an anti-hero, so you're not a big fan of him, but also you understand it does it explores not in great detail but enough detail to show you why he is the way he is, and that gives sort of a depth to his character, which is the, probably the best. It's one of the best depictions of an anti-hero I've seen in quite a while. Yeah, and before I go through the reading I like of the film, have you seen it, Jake? I haven't, no. Right, well, there, there's different understandings. So, so there's, um, you know, Josh is going through the, the meaning of family mm. as, as one you quite like. The, the reading I like of it is how the film explores masculinity through hands. Mm. Because Ryan Gosling is a fighter in that film and also a, a, a I wouldn't say a gun for hire, but more of a fist for hire. Mm. He... It's all about how, specifically, his hands um, are something that can destroy and hurt, but also something that can caress and love and create as a very much a, a, like a visual metaphor for masculinity. 
so that reading of the film I actually found quite uh, was the one I picked up on when I saw it and I read that some people also have that reading of it and I quite like that I think it's quite quite impactful yeah, I, actually, I haven't actually heard that before, but I did. Now I think about it, there are a lot of shots of hands just running along walls and stuff. Yeah, so that's quite interesting. So another thing you included on your list here, Jake, is that, um, and I obviously having seen a lot of films with you, I know that you are a particularly big fan of sort of perhaps not romantic comedies, but very much sort of romantically tinged films. And on your list here, you have things like Lost in Translation, Call Me by Your Name, A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And I was just wondering, what is your sort of what's your take on why you enjoy those films so much? I don't really know. I guess it's the sort of tension that's in them. Like, cause ultimately, none of these—I don't think any of these films, apart from Adventureland, maybe have the sort of very stereotypical narrative of a romantic film. Like, people meet, they—they're getting on well, something goes wrong, and they get back together at the end. Whereas none of those—well, bit of bit of spoil of those films, but none of those end in that particular way. So they're definitely something that's a bit different. And I think that especially Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I watched in January. I personally enjoyed that more than Parasite, and I think it was the best foreign film of last year, technically, from an Oscars point of view. I still haven't seen it. Have you seen it? Parasite? No, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Sorry, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Well, it hasn't released yet. I think it releases this Friday in the UK, so Mm -hmm. I I am going to go see it next week. I'm very, very interested in it. I highly recommend it. What did you prefer about Parasite to have interest? Um, I don't know. I, I enjoyed Parasite. I think the... There was a lot of the... I saw Tobias's tweet about it where he said it was funny. I personally didn't find it particularly funny. Oh. I, found it, I found it very interesting, but... There was a lot of scenes I found heartbreaking. Like, there were a lot of scenes which, which did actually move me almost to tears. Like, I was on the verge of tears for a lot of uh, Parasite. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the I found it very funny, though. There, there's so much dark humour in that film. And... I guess that's why uh, Korean cinema has that little niche to it. And it's the fact that it switches between tones even in the middle of scenes. So like Train to Busan is dealing with the the, the father-daughter relationship and, oh my God, there's zombies and we're going to die. But it's also very funny at times. And I felt Parasite did that too. I'm I'm not necessarily a massive fan of things like that. I think we might come on to it later. But it's probably a big reason why I'm not a big fan of a lot of the Marvel films. I don't like when for example in a marvel film when they're about to go and fight someone but just before they're like cracking wise amongst each other i find that sort of takes me out of the viewing of it yeah the marvel humor maybe like is very canned almost like it's very formulaic i think i think maybe the i I don't think it maybe is perhaps the wrong word really but i think maybe sort of dark darkly funny maybe is the wrong maybe it's like kind of i sort of view it more as like darkly amusing like it's definitely not laugh out loud funny it's more just like a sort of hmm a sort of a really sort of a very minor sort of just something but i feel like in something like parasite what it does really well the reason why i personally quite enjoyed those sort of slightly humorous amusing moments is it does break tension really well and there was, i was listening to an interesting interview with um it was jordan peele talking about get out and he was talking about how one of his favorite memories of a child was the first time he ever managed to make people laugh but the one he remembers more than that was the first time he ever managed to make people scared and he was talking about sort of the interplay between them and that especially in sort of Get Out and Us, the way he used comedy to sort of... So he'd set something up to be scary, break it with comedy, and then immediately go back to something scary again just to give sort of that extra dynamic of sort of a sort of cinematic terror. Yeah, it, it hits you. It's like, when, it's like literally like pulling your hand back for a punch. Like it, it gives it that extra impact. Yeah. 
It's sort of that sort of lulls you into a false sense of like, oh, it's going to be okay, and then something bad happens. Yeah. It's a very interesting. It's not, I thought it was a very interesting interview. Um, but portrait of a lady of fire. Um, what what was it about it that um really really um clicked with you? It's uh, obviously now that you've seen it, but it's difficult to like it's a very different sort of way of making a film. Like when you watch it, you sort of think, oh, it's something a bit off about that, and then you realise that there's only two spoken lines by men in the entire film, which is very weird considering like what's what's the test called that people apply to films? Uh, the Bechdel test. Yeah, Bechdel test. I was never sort of thought about it from the other perspective and like obviously that wouldn't pass it because there's only one man in the entire film and he only has two lines. So, but especially not just, obviously that didn't make me enjoy it more or less, but the main bit of it I enjoyed was just the, like the sort of the chemistry between the two main characters in it. Like the plot is basically a woman is hired to go and paint a portrait of another woman who is about to get married. And then uh, obviously when there's, it's clearly a romance plot that happens, which is fairly obvious from anything you read about it. Yeah. But the sort of tension in that, and there's a bit, a lot of the focus on the film is on a, is a part where they're sort of talking about a Greek myth, and then that sort of starts to play out throughout the film. Which I won't tell you what it is, but it'll spoil it. But that's sort of a very, it sort of added a lot to what could have been quite a boring film, but that added the sort of extra dimension that made me sort of, made me think that it was an incredibly well-written and well-acted film. The thing about that that I find most interesting that you've just said there is sort of that you've, you've spoken about sort of the um the not romance but the sort of the d- different depictions of romance and you sort of touched on it yourself is that actually weirdly after looking at your list yesterday I watched Adventure Land for the first time last night and I don't understand why it's on your list of favourite films because I thought it was the most formulaic kind of like it was enjoyable but it was just formulaic nonsense for about ninety percent of it. So I think that was probably the least. It's, it's, uh, that's the most unlike the other three I've put on here, to be fair. Mm. But I think that's because I watched it when I was like just leaving secondary school, so I think it's all stuck in my mind as something I didn't quite enjoy. Mm, okay. So, uh, on to directors now. You've included, you did write afterwards that right, having written the list made you feel like a bit of a basic bitch because you wrote, I was supposed to touch on Dennis Villeneuve, Safdie Brothers, Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan. So of them, which which one would you which one do you want to talk about really? Um, I think uh, probably Safdie Brothers because I watched Good Time and then Uncut Gems fairly recently, so that's they do stick in my mind quite a lot. So here's a, uh, the the Scorsese question: How did you watch Good Time? I hope it wasn't on a phone. <laughs> no, I watched it on a television. All right, a, that, that's a fair experience. I um I was very fortunate to see it at the cinema. I saw it at home, um, the cinema here in Manchester. And it, there were like four people screening I was at. Uh, it was really ahead of any safety hype, and it was it, it was intense. I didn't find Uncut Gems to be anxiety-inducing, but um, Good Time definitely got me anxious. I found that I actually found Uncut Gems more tense. No, I should say because I was sure that the thing that pans out in the end, I was sure that wasn't going to happen. Oh, if fair. Because because the the this is sort of a double twist at the end because you're not expecting what happens you're expecting what happens after that if that makes sense yeah yeah I I totally get that yeah for me it was that it was the there was something like almost poetic in the chaos that it all just kind of yeah it's all going to hell but you're safe just watching it and you're just yeah kind of have to sit there and and see what happens I guess also the thing with uh, 
good time was I didn't know how long the film was and wasn't really paying attention to the time. So I, when it got to the end, I didn't know that was the end. So I didn't realise that was the sort of climax of the film. Yeah, well, that, again, double twist, like in, in Uncut Gems, Good Time pulls that double twist where it's paced uh, as if it's going to be longer than it actually is. Mm. I think I was I was thinking about this the other day, actually, about the Safety Brothers. It might have been yesterday, actually. And I was thinking about, in terms of what I like about the films the most, is their ability to pace a film. Is I've never seen film pacing as spot on. Because it is, it is so relentless, but at the same time, it doesn't ever become... It's, it doesn't seem like they're... It's not like they're trying to cram too much in. Like, it's it's so perfectly... It's exactly the right amount of stuff and exactly the right length of time between stuff that when you take it into a slight lull, as soon as something comes back, it's like, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that. But you just don't... You don't get tired of it. And I think that is probably quite a big danger of quite a lot of, like... Quite a lot of like heist films as well. So I, I quite enjoy a good heist film. And I find the sort of the the tension-inducing bit to always be a bit long and just like oh, I just kind of want to get it over with but with the I think maybe it's the fact that they keep keep the t- ratchet the tension for so long that it's impossible to want the tension to go away because you're so used to it at that point whereas if you have sort of a two-hour, 15-minute long heist film you sort of spend the sort of at first hour and a half setting it up and then half an hour on the heist bit and then another half an hour where they all get caught like the best example I can think of off the top of my head is the um, it's, oh, it's the one with my, the a uh, Hatton Garden heist one, the one with Michael Caine in. I can't remember what it was called. Oh, the Italian job. The Hatton Garden heist. No, the ha- the one based on the Hatton Garden heist. Oh yes, yeah. Uh, I should remember the name of that, and I can't. But I saw yes, it in the cinema as well. Oh, uh, King of Thieves. King of Thieves. King of Thieves. I I enjoyed it, but I just thought that the like towards the end of the, sort of the danger of them getting caught, it was just like it just became too much, and you just wanted it to be over. Whereas I didn't feel like that at all with either uncut gems or good time interestingly actually something we've spoken about before is what did you prefer good time or uncut gems uh probably uncut gems you're on the uncut gems one yeah see i'm 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 torn because i like uh adam sandler way more than robert Pattinson in in the films mm. there's something about adam sandler's character just how he bling he's just he's so charismatic mm. and lovable despite being I mean, he he's not horrible. He's not a horrible person. He's just doing his thing, and he's you know he's he's got a questionable moral compass. Yeah, definitely questionable. He's not outright nasty. No, um, he's not malicious. I guess. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Robert Pattinson's character was very much malicious. He had few redeeming features. The only thing was kind of like a code of honor between him and his brother. I think I feel a different way about that. I think that I felt that's I I mean to to be to be completely transparent about it. I actually preferred Good Time. Because I find, I think the sort of intricacies of the plot and the uh, what the film is trying to say, sort of both, um, sort of uh, properly and then subconsciously as well, I think is really, in- really was really interesting for me. And I think again, I think it is that connection to family that I really enjoyed, and it is the sort of it, the relationship between him and his brother, where they're both just where he is being an awful person, but to save his brother, and it just. So that kind of that dynamic it really interested me, and also a lot of the what I found out afterwards that I really want to rewatch the film and really look for it is the sort of uh, racial undertones of the film. Have you ever looked into that before? Uh, no, I've not. If you watch the film, like pretty much every single person that Robert Pattinson screws over is a person of color. Oh wow! So when he's in the hospital, he steals the person's drink. Yeah. They obviously at the beginning of the film they dress in blackface to the heist. The girl, oh, yeah. the girl, he gets to drive him. Person of color, the security guard, person of color. Oh yeah, when so you the really security guard did make did that whole scene. 
um not only was it nasty in the sense of this is actually a nasty act but yeah. the fact that yeah i did i did actually feel kind of like that racial message that, that's the clearest one but when you actually look through it the whole way through the film it's mental how well done it is wow well worth a rewatch yeah so um one thing we also like to talk about on the podcast at length is uh, quentin tarantino so what's your quentin tarantino take i think he has a mixed filmography i'm a big fan my favorite tarantino films kill Bill one my least favorite that i've seen is probably hateful eight i think i don't get the hate for hateful eight but it's usually tarantino fans that don't like hateful eight because it's probably the least tarantino tarantino film i think i'm a big fan of like obviously it's, it's a very commonly said thing about his dialogue like i watched um inglorious bastards two nights ago and there were scenes in that where it's just two people talking and you're sort of watching it and you realize oh my god the scenes were going on for 10 minutes and like, because the, the dialogue is so good that you just sort of get so lost in it. Whereas with the hate, with hateful eight, I think the fact it was in one room maybe put me off. Also, I watched it like three years ago before I sort of started watching films a bit more so, intensely. So maybe I wasn't paying enough attention. That's fair. But how many westerns have you seen? Uh, like old westerns, not that many. Like newer ones, I've seen a few. Okay, so because what I found interesting about hateful eight was that as a western it simultaneously pays tribute to new and old westerns while also um subverting the genre by making it i mean it's just a film about cabin fever yeah i suppose i think as i said that it would probably definitely rather rewatch for myself to see whether after i think it was also probably one of the for the first film because i'd actually seen anyway so maybe i sort of wasn't used to the way he sort of makes films in the sense that that a lot of them do go on for quite a while and do involve a lot of dialogue. But Well, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I felt went on for quite a while in all the wrong ways. So what? how do you feel about it? I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it? No, I was, gonna watch, I was actually going to watch it the other night and I found out that um, Inglourious Bastards was on Netflix. I was like, I'll just watch that instead, it's easier. All right, that, that, that's fair. I'll hand, I'll hand that to you. <laughs> so on that subject of films that you are not perhaps not as keen in as uh, some other films, uh, so on your list of least favourite actors, genres, writers and directors, uh, the, you've written something quite amusing. You've written films that aren't awful but are more interesting to talk about than Total Dross. You've written Joker, Lord of the Rings and Venom. Well, yeah, I didn't want to do films that like, I utterly hate. Like I was looking up one before I started. It was, it's a film called The Night We Met, Not We First Met. It's like, it's um, Alexander Daddario and... Uh, Adam Devine, is that the actor? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and it was just, it's an awful film. I was thinking, like, if I put bad films in there, there's not much fun to talk about. So I just thought, I'd it. but I didn't hate any of these films with a passion. They're just films that I pers- didn't resonate with me personally for reasons that I think might be kind of interesting. So one thing we've talked about on the podcast, and again at length, to be honest, is we've had quite a lot of people on talking about Joker. We had some people, I think we had someone on the other day seen it in the cinema three times, and then we had other people on who said they didn't really, because we, we, we both quite openly weren't massive fans of it, were we? Yeah, no, I mean, I think Joker is an, it's an okay film on every level. Like, it could have improved on every level, and that's really it. I don't mm. think it, it, it goes beyond the, it, I don't think it, treads into the territory of one of the greatest films of our generation yeah so what was your take on it jake uh pretty much what tobias sort of hit into there the amount of critical acclaim i got from people when people say it was the best thing they've ever seen you do 10 to 1 how many films they've actually seen yeah <laughs> because there's, there's there's nothing new in the film like any all the films i've spoken about before had 
something that happened in them that made you think. There was nothing in this film that made me think about anything because it was so obvious what was sort of going on. And it's like, I'm, Joaquin Phoenix is an incredible actor. And when you read about the amount of improvisation he did for the film, it almost makes you think less of the film because the amount of acclaim that the director, Todd Phillips, got for getting that performance out of him, the sheen is somewhat taken off that by the fact that a lot of the stuff that was so critically acclaimed he was did stuff himself. he didn't even write. Yeah. Yeah, yeah see, it's, I always say the same when I talk about Joker, but to me, it feels very, very similar to The Machinist. Have you seen that? I haven't, no. The Machinist is uh, starring Christian Bale. He plays um, a guy who, who is a machinist, um, works in a factory, and he's an insomniac. He has intense insomnia, and he hasn't slept for... He doesn't know how long. Like, it's reached a point where it's just insane. And he is extremely skinny. He is slightly sociopathic. Um, he hallucinates. It, it's basically... Joaquin Phoenix character in Joker without the name Joker attached to it. Yeah, I think me and Josh watched Taxi Driver over the summer. And then when you watch that and you've watched Joker, you realise how much is sort of been drawn from the character in that. The bit that just made me turn off personally, sort of mentally turn off from it, was the bit where um, he actually fires the gun in the house. And that is Rob's direct... That scene literally happened in Taxi Driver. Really? And that was the bit where I was like, no, I'm tapping out now. And, I mean, and just, you just... I, I did get... I got some, not really flack or anything, but someone I know... Uh, uh, I tweeted something about how if you're watching a bit of... It out of context, was just... It's the bit at the end when he's... The thing happens that I won't spoil when he's on the talk show. And I sort of tweeted it without context. And then you just listen to the dialogue and it's just weird... Like, it just is dross. Oh, the dialogue. I was sitting there and I was trying not to laugh because I was thinking this monologue at the end is literally, we live in a society. It, it was. And I think a lot of people said that before it even came out. It was going to be that. And I was like, surely it can't be that bad. It was it pretty is. much that bad. And there's, there are arguments that what he's saying is absolutely rubbish because he's got a childlike mind and all that kind of stuff. But I just felt like there was... I just felt there was so much more potential of the film and especially the sort of the anti-austerity message is something that isn't actually tackled that much in like mainstream films no no of course ken loach yeah is if anything he's known as the austerity filmmaker but that's british cinema and american cinema it's not really tackled in the way ken loach does it i watched an interesting film at the um manchester international film festival last year that still hasn't been dis- distributed yet called princess of the row which i thought was actually a really interesting depiction of what it is like to be living in america under their sort of current economic uh climate which i thought it's not like that like i haven't seen a film like that and i thought that this is might be very similar but i thought that some of those themes sort of maybe are reflected in joker but then it just took those themes and then just steamrolled them with just absolute dross about I can't remember what the line even was. Something to do about something to anim- go wolf. Oh yeah, yeah. We yeah. I'm gonna go. They, don't be surprised if they go wolf on you. It's like Jesus. Yeah, no, that's a bit on the nose. And Jake, I'm gonna challenge challenge your your uh, answer. You say that you don't like horror. Which ones have you seen, and why don't you like it? I was, uh, yeah, I don't right here. The uh, the only horrors I've really seen are Train to Busan, which that the other day, uh, Annihilation, and something that's kind of a horror, but kind of not. Is Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah. I'm not sure if you've, have you, have you seen that. Uh, that's uh, John Carpenter, right? 
Yes, yeah, because basically it was, I think, 1978. So it was like the sort of plot of the film is that there is a police officer who goes to an abandoned precinct because it's closing down and then it's suddenly sort of under siege by armed people. But the way it was it was done, like before a lot of the main action films, so like before Die Hard and stuff, and John Carpenter's most well-known for, like, The Thing and is it Nightmare on Elm Street he did? Uh, no, no, uh, it's uh, Halloween. Uh, well, Halloween, that's it, yeah. So it's sort of not... Because the, the people who are attacking it are gunmen, but the way it's done, they could be anything, really. Like, it could be a zombie film, it could be an alien film. And the way it's... The sort of feel of it is so different to a normal action film because it was one of the first of its kind. Does that make sense? So it, I haven't actually seen it. I am a big Carpenter fan. I haven't seen uh, Precinct 13. But you're saying that it really dehumanizes the antagonists. Yeah, I mean, apart from a short spell at the beginning, they are basically, there's no sort of context to them being there. Not not much context, which I think actually helps the film. Yeah. It's a lot more focused on the sort of internal dynamic amongst the group that's made up of the police officer, some uh, like people who work in the station and some ex-convicts as well which is sort of very interesting dynamics to see how they play off each other that's that actually sounds quite interesting um but thinking of proper horror uh, have you what have you seen that you just really made you think this genre isn't worth it it's not necessarily what i've seen it's sort of that uh, you touched on it i think maybe two episodes ago you're talking about jump scares yeah and i'm just not really i just don't find the sort of thing about that interesting like for example when i watched train to busan I looked up online where the jump scares were, like cut fast forward to those bits so I knew when they'd happen. But like, t- like to be fair, I think there's only like three in Train to Busan, and they're not actually that bad. And like, Annihilation's also not that bad, I don't think. Yeah, I Annihilation doesn't really have any jump scares. It has kind of jump, jump scare uses of t- of jump scares, but not out of nowhere. Like it, it fits into the scene where they appear. Mm. Like yeah, first like for example. I'm not so bad with like the, the quote-unquote scary parts. Like, for, I see a lot of people saying the bear scene in that one where they're in the dark and they're being attacked by the... the... Yeah. Do you remember that bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. the bear. A, a lot of people say that's like a really terrifying scene. Like, I was fine with that. I was fine with that, It would be yeah. like, if they were looking around a building, they suddenly opened a door and there was something there, I just like wouldn't want to watch anyone. It's sort of the fear of that, I think, puts me off. Just, it's a tension that, that gets you. No, I enjoy the I enjoy the tension. It's just the way the tension is sort of released. If that okay. makes sense. Like, I don't know. I feel like for me personally, I don't think it's not really the release. I do feel the tension releasing ones actually aren't that bad. I find it's the ones that come absolutely out of nowhere at all. That's just they're just so. And I think it's mostly in. It's not used that much anymore. But I think it was a very big thing in sort of the earlier days of sort of horror, especially like two thousands horror. Yeah, like two thousands, early twenty tens horror, like the paranormal activity. I was about but to say that just random jump scares. Like there's just no need for it. There's a good video essay on YouTube about it as well. That like for a jump scare to be successful, it has to have because the, the one that my mind really goes to is Alien. Because the first Alien is absolutely full of jump scares. Mm. But I was fine with it because it wasn't jump scares in the sense of just like, oh, suddenly the alien appears and it scares everyone. It's very well crafted that even if you do see the alien, it's very brief and it, it sort of it builds up the tension so much that the release of it is a very welcome release as opposed to just a, oh, God, that's actually really scary. Like, there's no need for it, if that makes sense. This sort of touches on the next part of the uh, show, but the sort of thing about jump scares was... 
I have a very vivid memory as a child watching the film The Grinch, the um, Mike Myers one. Jim Carrey. Jim, Jim, Jim Carrey one. And there's a scene at the beginning where a present like, rolls down a hill and at the bottom the Grinch jumps out. And I think that absolutely messed me up at the time of watching it. And I think that sort of maybe fueled my dislike of sort of out of nowhere jump scares. See, I can't remember watching The Grinch, but I can picture that scene. And I'm pretty scared right now. Like, that is a scary image. Yeah, I think that, that was, this is a very, much a, a very emotional subject for both me and Jake. That, like, we both have like, independently have vivid memories of being shown The Grinch as children and watching <laughs> that first scene and being absolutely terrified. Like, I just remember screaming. This is a childhood trauma. Genuinely, like, it's probably the... I'd say it's probably the one of the most... In terms of, like, memories of things I remember from being a kid, that's probably one of the earliest ones. That's I must have been probably f- f- four or five, and I still can vividly remember it now. There's some images from films, whether you've seen the film or you just saw a poster um, or an image, that as a kid, that really stick with you. My brother, and I think he said it on the episode, the scene that really got him from the film was Harry Potter... I think it's the prisoner of azkaban where they are in london Mm -hmm. it's one of the first films where they spend a lot of time in london before hogwarts and the dementors attack and just my brother had a fear like just deathly fear of dementors for years i remember when me and jake were both kids we used to you know the first harry potter film the uh philosopher's stone yeah at the end when professor quirrell takes his um headscarf a turban off sorry and there's voldemort's head is on the back of his we used to fast forward that, and we. I, so I never watched the ending of that film until I was probably about twelve or thirteen, just because we used to fast forward it every time. I mean, it is terrifying. It is, yeah. I think it's definitely the. It's probably the worst, other than the jump scare of the snake in the second to last one. Yes. Or last one. They're basically the same film anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But yeah, that's something that, in terms of image, cinematic imagery, that is burned into my retina as a terrifying childhood moment. That's probably it. So what other image do you have burned into your mind, Jake? Um, I was trying to think, since so you were saying that. I think there's a bit in the, the Goblet of Fire, the Harry Potter one, where in the graveyard at the end, I think that was sort of very, when I first watched it, I found that reasonably scary, I think, because I feel a very, yeah. very sinister atmosphere. Yeah, that, that is a pretty messed up ending to film. And the guy cuts his own, cuts his own arm off, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, I think so. That's quite, yeah. that's quite dark. And the kill bloody yeah, wrong person. Sorry, yeah. spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> Spoilers over a decade later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah, childhood films on the subject of being scared as a child. What about films that didn't scare you as a child? Films that actually, you know, are your comfort films? I think mostly from what I remember, it was a lot of like animated films. So like Disney and Pixar mainly, but then also like some DreamWorks ones. So like with Disney, I remember watching The Lion King quite a lot. I remember watching Toy Story. I remember watching The Incredibles. I think I saw that in the cinema. And no, I Finding Nemo I saw in the cinema. Did we see The Incredibles in the cinema? No, Finding Nemo was the first thing we ever saw in the cinema. Yeah, I thought it was. I remember that. But weirdly, actually, on the sort of topic of Pixar, I, I, could, I can't remember back to when you spoke about it the other day, but did you ever mention something about Wally? Like I first watched it when I was maybe like 10 and just absolutely hated it and then rewatched it last year, I think, and absolutely loved it. Like Now it's probably my favourite Pixar film. I don't think I'd ever seen the film Wally before I played the Wii game Wally, and I think that might have put me off it. Does that ring any bells to you? Or am I going completely mental here? 
Oh no, we definitely had that game on Nintendo Wii, yeah. Yeah, maybe th- th- that game was really bad. I think that might have actually put me off. Maybe I had seen the film a bit, but I think that put me off ever wanting to really get de- get into watching it. I can kind of remember the game, yeah. It's like a really just recessed memory. Yeah, that's really weird. One thing, talking of repressed memories here, on the list of films that were meaningful to you as a child, you put the f- you put Fox and the Hound. I don't think I've ever... Have we ever had... Have we watched that? Like, I don't remember I'm, ever... I'm, I'm, I'm 100% sure that we have a VCR copy of that and I've watched it because I remember vaguely the plot as well. I mean, chances are I probably watched that with you and I have genuine... I could not tell you a single thing that happened in that film. No, I definitely remember it. I think it... It's quite... I quite remember I quite enjoyed it when I watched it. It was my favourite films I watched when I was younger. It's a a Disney animated classic, isn't it? Yes, Yes. I believe so. See, I hadn't actually seen it, but um, just a funny story. My uh, co-worker of mine, uh, old co-worker, I, I... don't work there anymore um she uh she's spanish and she was like oh you're toby like um the dog in the in tony dobby and i'm like what are you on about <laughs> so i had to look it up and i realized that's the fox and the hound but in in, in spanish it was like tony dobby was the name didn't know the spanish for either do- fox or hound but that is not fox it's their names they oh, changed right. their names just for the title yeah um, no the fox and the hound would be um il- El, el, el zorro y el perro. Something else you've included on the list here, which are films that I can guarantee I have not thought about in a very long time, are uh, Big Mama's House 1 and Big Mama's House 2. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I definitely remember like watching them with our dad. Yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how old we were when we watched those, but from what I can remember, we probably weren't old enough to have been watching those. <laughs> yeah, that's very fair. Well, the, 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 I think the most indicative thing of how poor those films are is there was an extended sequence in the first one where Martin Lawrence is trapped in a bathroom hiding behind a shower curtain. I remember this whilst, scene! Whilst a woman is using the toilet and it's as anyone who's watched a Martin Lawrence comedy vehicle can expect what happens. I remember watching, yeah, Big Mama's House and going, you know, I watched it when I was about like 13 or 14, so it was at one point where I was like, yeah, I should be, you know, old enough to watch a film like this and it's like, look, son, you are old enough to watch a film like this and it's fine this is this is what you know this is what entertainment is but you still kind of have that feeling of th- this is just kind of wrong oh no we, we, me and jake watched it and we were like six yeah no i, I must be like 12 yeah no so. we were probably definitely far too- the first one's quite dark as well if i remember rightly yeah i remember i don't remember much of the plot of the first and the second one. i think we watched the second one first i think this first one isn't it that the whole thing with terence howard he's trying to come back and kill his wife who's big oh, mother's yeah, yeah. niece so it's yeah this, this, yeah the second one's one about the sort of the crypto whatever it is oh yeah yeah and then the third one less said about that the better so i like the cinema yeah we did actually that's a... probably the only people in the world who actually went to see it <laughs> i think we were like the, i remember i remember i think we were there were only about eight people in the cinema and four of the people were me you and our parents just one thing i was one, one thing i would say about that very quickly is that this isn't particularly to do with that it's just that i mentioned uh, martin lawrence is that i don't understand why Josh, you don't like bad boys. I really, I actually really enjoyed it. I don't think I disliked it. I just didn't think it was as good as I. I, I, I just didn't find. I don't know. I just find the buddy cop thing a bit tiresome. If I'm honest, they all seem I, very formulaic. I, I, yeah, but I thought it was done really, really well on that one. But I thought that's probably the best buddy cop thing I've seen since. He's about the other, the other guys. I think this is even better. Like the chemistry between Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, I just thought was really, really good. Are you talking about Bad like, Boys 1, the, the Two Bad Two Boys, yeah, the first one. or the new one? First one. No, just the first one we watched, me and Josh watched Ever Christmas. 
to be fair, having said that, I watched it the day after New Year's Eve and I was extremely hungover and I had to leave for about half an hour in the middle <laughs> to go and be unwell somewhere. <laughs> so the fact I missed out a solid half an hour of the film probably isn't, it probably isn't great for my enjoyment of the film, if I'm honest. Good point. Yeah, it's true, I forgot about that. But I thought, because <laughs> like, it's obviously a very, it's, what people say is the start of Michael Bay's descent into explosions and other sort of very films that are sort of quite basic. But I actually thought it was done quite well in that film. I think it's, that was before he sort of jumped the shark with it and did stuff that was patently ridiculous. Like everything in that film is moderately plausible. Is So is Bad Boys, so Bad Boys 1 isn't the one where they're like in front of the burning crosses in the middle of the KKK or is that in the second, which one is that in? <laughs> That must be the, must be the second one. It must be the second one, yeah. Because I was reading about how um, how Michael Bay is actually, if you were trying to map his politics on a on a political compass, it he do, he transcends the political compass because on some films he'll be super patriotic and nationalist and be like, yeah, America's the best and you got to support our troops. But then in something like Bad Boys 2, he'll be like, yeah, here's some burning crosses in the KKK, because why not? I mean, I can't attest for that, because I haven't seen the film, but that does sound very Michael Bay. I, I've seen the scenes. Mm. But moving on from Michael Bay, there is something I was thinking about on the way here, and I was like, I have to ask this question. First of all, twin films. Which one have you seen, and maybe say are relatable, or are twin films just BS? And I'm talking films featuring twins. Such as? Such as stuff like yeah, Parent try, Trap. I've never seen Parent Trap. That. I've never seen the film Twins featuring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny Vito. Yeah, I haven't seen either of them. I'm trying to think of other twin-based films. Yeah, the Weasley Twins are quite relatable. Not relatable, but like, that's sort of... That's probably the most accurate depiction of twins I've seen on film, arguably. I'd definitely say that. Especially in like the latter ones where, spoiler, that came out ages ago, one of them dies. Like, that's a fairly... Uh, emotional moments for anyone watching the film but i think it someone with a very close sibling it would probably resonate harder with them so what about um uh legend with tom hardy and tom hardy that probably that they're not twins they're the cray twins i think um that that perpetuates the very angry myth that i get asked a lot which does my head in of when somebody goes oh you're twin well which Lepathy. one's which one's the evil one? It's like, oh. no, none of us. Go away. Leave me alone. It's irritating. That's Josh's the, evil one. Perhaps. I think that's uh, maybe different. I don't know, to be honest. I generally can't think of any films that are like, particularly massive about twins, anything. So if you were to write a film, both of you together, about the twin experience, what would it be about and how would you go about it? You can first. Woommates. <laughs> Woommates. A buddy cop film. I think the way I'd do it is I'd do it with... Actually, I wouldn't do it like that. What I would do is I would have... The, 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 the be very different things. They'd be, they'd be very different. I think I'd do it in two different cinematic styles. Okay. I'd have one... One of them lives a life in a certain cinematic style, and one lives in life in a different cinematic style, and then it sort of comes together at different points during the film, and you sort of see them throughout their lives. Maybe a bit <laughs> like Boyhood, but kind of... Yeah. So we're talking one of you guys would be kind of like the mid-2000s Poop Brown from action films, and the <laughs> other one would be, I don't know, just the bright, um, overexposed colours of, like, Clueless. No, mine would be the Wes Anderson kind of, like, pastel yes. colours. And what would yours be, Jake? Um, uh, probably some sort of, like, anything that, uh, what's his name, did. Roger Deakins kind of cinematography, like, very, like, sort of, very expansive. And <laughs> so, sort of... so one of them has the big wide shots, the other one has the tight shots with perfectly constructed sets. That sounds good to me. 
I might write that at some point. <laughs> Woo, woomates, coming to a cinema near you sometime in the future. Yes. And on that note, I think it's time for us to wrap up today. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening live, if you are listening to this live. Because yes. I actually forgot we were doing this live. Yeah, we, we're just that natural. So, Jake, just before we go, um, is there anything you'd like to plug? Any projects? Uh, anything you just want people to know about? Uh, yes, yeah, so if anyone is a m- big fan of Premier League football, I have a podcast which you can find by searching on Spotify Goals Allowed, which is a good pun. Unfortunately, good I did not come up with it. And aside from that, you can follow me on Twitter at Jake Sandy FC. You can follow me on, I think my letterbox is Jake Sandy underscore. So go on there and see if I've been watching any films and I don't know, tweet me about them or something. Up to you. Fantastic. So. Yeah, thank you very much for listening this week. Um, I'm Tobias Soar on all my social media. You can find me on Twitter at Josh Sandy and on Instagram and Letterboxd at Josh W. Sandy. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye.